So the reading is taken from Nehemiah, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and it's Nehemiah's prayer. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakiliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Why don't you turn to your neighbour and tell them everything you know about Nehemiah? Okay, I know some of you are talking about your lunch now. I'm not fooled. Um, Some weeks ago, uh, I was thinking and praying about how we might use our teaching time uh, through this term leading up to Easter. And I felt that we could benefit from looking in some depth at the book of Nehemiah. Uh, And it will help if we have some grasp of the background of the story. From the conversation, I can tell that's pretty rich already, but we'll see how it goes. But I want to spend the first half, or probably more than half, of uh, my time with you uh, just on that, the historical background, which before you just yawn, and I mean, I hope it will be useful. And then I'll just look at those first four verses uh, from Nehemiah 1. If you're not aware of it, which you may well be, but the big story of the people of God in the first half of the Christian Bible, which is for Jews, the Bible, um, they were slaves in Egypt down in the southwest. And then under Moses and Joshua, they were given a land of their own, the promised land, the land that had been promised. But then through disobedience to God, they're made slaves again. And this time they're taken by the Assyrians up to Babylonia, to the opposite direction, uh, to the northeast. So in case you couldn't visualize it from my, it looks like I was doing a dab, didn't it? But uh, taken as slaves by the Assyrians, they ended in Babylon, which of course is now called Baghdad. And uh, you might know um, Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered, oh, you know the song by Boney M. It's a great one, isn't it? It dates you if you can remember it, actually. I I don't mean two and a half thousand years. I mean, you know, probably in the 70s. But um, Zion, the city of David, so back in Jerusalem. And the image there is, how could I possibly sing a song of joy whilst we're deported, we're slaves again in a foreign land. This guy's got a way more impressive beard than I was ever able to grow. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and he could be pretty cruel. 
as there's not too many children, I'll point out, on the top relief, you might be able to see um, people being impaled on poles. So this is what happened. They would be taken and they were, it's almost like uh, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree and they had different ways of doing it before crucifixion. It was impaling. And, and so these are records of what was done. It was a very cruel time. And the effect of that was probably in our generation not dissimilar to the effect of the Holocaust in um, the last century. It left a gaping psychological wound in God's people. How could they ever recover? But actually, Jeremiah, the prophet, I mean, he's, most of his book, he was the most, I mean, it's a tough gig given by God to tell people you've got to surrender because you're going to be destroyed otherwise. I mean, he was seen as a traitor. He was multiple times they tried to kill him. And he was just saying, we're going to be destroyed because of this sinfulness, and it's too late. I mean, it's a very depressing message, a, a bit like my sermon today, I'm sorry. Um, but unexpectedly, there are little glimpses of hope because he says, you are going to be deported. And there were three waves of deportation then did happen later. But he says, after 70 years, you will return, you will rebuild and restart. And he even said that despite everything in the exile, they would have a future and a hope. Now, some decades later, the Babylonians uh, are subsumed by the Medo-Persian Empire, and the new king in charge is Cyrus of Persia. And in modern terms, we would probably say he's got a very different attitude to his foreign policy. Right in the middle, you might be able to see Susa. So Nehemiah starts, um, Nehemiah is a Jew in exile in this uh, big city there on the map. Now Cyrus isn't a Jew. He doesn't worship Israel's God, but he just behaves differently to Nebuchadnezzar and some of the other um, uh, nasties of the time. So not a very good technical term there, but I think you know what I'm saying. Um, so he says, actually, you may as well go back and you can say a prayer for me. Why don't you take back the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar stole from the temple? And so you can read about that. So there must have been such a feeling of euphoria. Oh, all that Jeremiah prophesied is going to happen. And uh, so they go back, and the person leading them then has a very interesting name, Zerubbabel. Just shout it back to me. So that's his name, and he represents the generation born in exile, and in fact his very name means planted in Babylon. That's what Jeremiah had said, you've got to be planted there and don't die out, increase in number so that there's people who can return. And so it feels like Jeremiah's prophecy is going to be fulfilled, but actually it isn't. They start work on the new temple, and then when they're sort of getting through it, the people who remembered the first one are just weeping. They just say, this is pathetic. This is so hopeless. It's nothing like as good. And I think there's something of that spirit in Christians at times. I know I've mentioned it before, but I grew up 
on a little island, Guernsey. And yet even in my youth group, in a thriving church, there were 200 young people, which in Guernsey was very big. Even around here, it's not too small. And the, if you've seen something better, you can carry an ache. Oh, crumbs. This, you know, we're talking it up, but it's not that impressive. Uh, it can feel like that. And that's how it was for the people who looked at this new temple. Well, it's not really that great. So it's all terribly disappointing. And then there's conflict, and then we read, and the work on the building stopped. It just guillotines. Nothing happens for years. Oh, so much for that word from the Lord then. That didn't really work out properly. But then moving on a few more decades, a new Persian king, who has an even better name, Artaxerxes, he says, more exiles can go back. Let's uh, give it another go. And this time it's under someone called Ezra. And another wave of Jews return, but in short, it all goes wrong. They start fighting amongst themselves really badly. And again, the building work just stops. And the people are really divided, very vulnerable. And there's a terrible sense of anticlimax and disappointment. Now, you might need to know Ezra and Nehemiah um, in the Hebrew Bible is one book. So in the Christian Bible, you've got Ezra and then you've got Nehemiah. But Nehemiah is actually two-thirds of the way through uh, that book. So if you do want to read, this, this one's by Joseph Blinkensop. There's lots of exciting names today. Uh, the commentaries are on Ezra and Nehemiah because that is what the book is. Um, well, when we read uh, Nehemiah... It's not that there haven't been already attempts to sort this out. So we just heard it like it's the start of the story. It's not. They've already had two goes at this, and it's failed. They have not rebuilt the walls of the city, and they haven't done anything with the temple. And frankly, it seems a hopeless lost cause. Now, I hope you are still with me at this stage. So there's quite a lot of background there, but I hope it is useful. Because I want us to feel the weight of the crushing disappointment that Nehemiah feels right at the start. I wonder whether you, and I'm sure the answer is yes, have ever prayed for something and you really thought it was going to happen and then it doesn't. It is so frustrating, so painful, and I have many times been in that place for myself or for others and thinking, I, I really think it's going to happen, and then it doesn't. I find it way easier to pray for an acute problem than a chronic problem. Acute, it's really painful, but actually is going to be fixed one way or the other. I, I may have mentioned this in my last church. There's a great guy called Bill who, who'd been in uh, the forces, special forces, um, and uh, unfortunately he'd become very ill. He had necrosis of the bones, and he, had, he was in agony with one of his knees. And we were very into praying for people if they wanted it, 
And he was a gutsy guy. And just about every week, it seemed, he would come forward. And for four years, I found myself saying, oh, God, please, we're here again. And he was in agony. And I, eventually, it was healed because he had to have his leg amputated. That was not what I'd been praying for. He was delighted because he was in less pain. But I thought, oh, God, I've seen you heal other people, but why, why is it not happening? And it could be for yourself or it could be for other people. But it's very, very disappointing. I mean, if you don't believe in a God, you can't really do anything about it. You can just say life sucks. But if we believe God is good and it continues to get worse... Especially when we've had, you know, maybe someone has given you a word of encouragement and then, so much for that word. What, what do you do with that, sitting with disappointment for a long time? Well, Nehemiah is a Jewish man who's had some influence. He has some responsibility, even though he's living in Susa, even though he's in a foreign land. He personally has actually done pretty well. But he meets people just returned from Judah and is shocked by what he hears. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about the city, Jerusalem. And just a little footnote there, those who just survived the exile, it's a quite a neat point. God says he promises he will punish them if they don't turn and they don't turn, so he fulfills his promise, just as he fulfills his promise later, to restore them. But, you know, someone once said, the meek shall inherit the earth. Have you ever heard someone say that? Jesus didn't make it up. It's actually in one of the Psalms. Um, and it was actually a deep theme that rather than the arrogant, the meek will inherit the earth. And it had a very bitter twist um, under Nebuchadnezzar and the Assyrians because in the first uh, deportation they took away the king, the royal family and uh, the lords and ladies of the land. Then there was a second deportation. They took away the artisans, people who were merchants and people who could do stuff. And then they did a third deportation. Everyone left except the lame, the poor, the blind, the crippled and we don't want them in our, you know, in our country. We'll just leave them. And so there was a very bitter fulfillment. Quite literally, the poor inherited the land. The people who were left were the not worth taking into slavery because they're just going to be a burden. They can't bring anything to the party. So in the, the Anuim, they're called in Hebrew. The poor, the humble, the nobodies. So I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived, even those people, and about Jerusalem. And they said, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. They're covered in shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates have been burned with fire. And frankly, whether it's in Ukraine or whether it's in Jerusalem, without city walls, the people are constantly going to be vulnerable to attack. And when it's impossible to close the city gates, they're constantly at risk. 
They're always going to be at the mercy of others, and it turns out others don't have any mercy. So they're just being hemorrhaging everything, every resource, and being attacked. Now, of course, Nehemiah's never been there. He had just imagined things were better than they really were. A bit like me, I've, for years we've had a link with South Sudan, which is fantastic. And uh, I regularly, as a vicar, sort of in our prayers, we pray for South Sudan. And when I actually went to South Sudan, I thought, oh my goodness, this is worse than I imagined. I mean, they weren't being, uh, it wasn't exactly the same situation. But when you feel it for yourself, it is uh, extraordinary. So how will he uh, respond to this? When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. I sat down. I just couldn't even process it, really. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I'll just share this. I mean, there is a real place for fasting. I used to fast once or twice a week in my 20s. The older I've got, the harder it's becoming, as you can see. But I've also been in a place where I am so sad about things, I just go off my food. Some of you have been there too. So I don't know whether it was technically a fast or whether he just, I can't bear to eat. I'm so unhappy. When Nehemiah hears about what's, what it's really like, I sat down and wept and I mourned and fasted and prayed, God help. Now, hopefully at this stage you're now feeling really low. No, I, I don't mean that at all. We're going to be looking at what Nehemiah does and there's some really positive things. Next week we'll be thinking about how he prays. Then how do you ask for help from other people? How do you actually make a start? I mean, for me, I can write an essay, but it's the first sentence. Actually starting is always the worst bit. Resisting discouragement, and he faces plenty of that. Resisting intimidation, and there's plenty of that. There's managing conflict among God's people. There's avoiding distractions. And then there's guarding your own. How do you protect what you have been given? And uh, I believe, I really hope and intend that these things are going to resource and help you. I think we can apply them to our own lives, to our country, to uh, your workplace, to our church, and maybe to your own family and your domestic situation. And I hope that we do that. But today, I just want to uh, identify the necessary starting place is sitting in the dust, in tears. The appropriate first response for Nehemiah was brokenness as he took hold of the reality. I remember from my childhood people saying, don't just sit there, do something. But I think now we're realizing the opposite may also be true. Don't just do something, sit there. Be truthful, be a person of integrity over what's really happening. 
I know I'm a bit of a hopeless romantic, but when I uh, read a book or uh, watch a film, which I love to do, I love it to have a happy ending. Anyone else like that? You like a happy ending? Others of you more hardcore? No. More grit. Um, but actually, it's because I, when I think about life, I'm, I'm optimistic. I want it to have a happy ending. Even when I'm taking a funeral service, I usually would tell the story of the person's life and hope there's a happy ending. Even though they've died, you can look at the whole of their life and celebrate that. But sometimes pain is just so overwhelming and pain and disappointment so crushing. In shock, you just think, I thought this story was going to end differently. I remember being with uh, a mum when her son, who was in his 30s, died. And she was just like, I don't think he ever really worked out what his life was for. And now it's gone. And it's not going to be fixed, even though she was a person of great faith. It was so awful. And so this is an emotional challenge, but it's also a theological challenge. God, where are you now? People have felt that in this country many times. In, in all countries, people of faith and people of no faith. I'm just reminded of, um, have I told you about Oliver Cromwell? No? I mean, he, he was a bad dude. I know he tried to follow God. But he, Oliver's battery outside uh, Winchester, he had his cannons aimed at the cathedral and blasted in the windows. And um, our cathedral for seven years was his stable block. It was just full of horse crap. I mean, you try and get a faculty in a church these days, it's <laughs> way harder. For people who worshipped in the cathedral when that happened, it must have been awful. And if you read something like Psalm 74, O oh God, the heathen have come up into your land. They have defiled your sanctuary. They have uh, chopped at the woodwork with hatchets. That's what happened down the road. We're not the first people to struggle with stuff. But when it's a place that you love, where you've encountered God and that's destroyed. It's terribly painful. In my last parish, we had the church open all the time. It felt to me, I felt God told me to do that. But it was risky. And every so often, I tended to be the person unlocking and locking. And every so often, you'd find people had come and, uh, and defaced it or done things that should not be done in a church. And it's just not very nice. But it's on a completely different scale to this. Anyone watch the repair shop? No, it's, well, it's daytime television, so yeah, it's a, not everyone. I, I've heard of it. No, I mean, I, when I have seen it, um, I, I actually find it very heartwarming because someone brings in their granddad's tricycle or something, and um, it's broken and then you see it returned and then there's always tears at the end and oh it's lovely isn't it 
No, okay, so that, don't watch it if you don't like that sort of stuff. But actually, the start of the journey is not when they walk into the shop, is it? The start of the journey is when someone is sitting at home saying, this is completely knackered, and I can't fix it. The realization, this is always going to be broken, unless there's some external intervention. Now, I quite, I don't know if this is a gender thing, so I perhaps shouldn't say that, I don't know. But quite a lot of blokes like fixing things, or at least pretending they're capable of it. And they go to their sheds and sort of uh, make a noise and um, whatever. Um, but it, it is quite satisfying if you can fix things. But I know many times I've been with people who are very broken, and then they tell me, their story of brokenness and I want to leap in immediately and say oh what you should do oh what worked for me and then I see in their eyes would you just shut up I don't care what you did I don't want your advice I just want you to hear how I'm feeling at the moment so some of us need to if we're going to grow as pastoral caring people is just not to speak so much and to listen and sit with the pain and not pretend we've got an answer. Sometimes we will, and that's great, but sometimes we won't. We've had the bereavement journey, and that course, I believe, has been so helpful because no one is forced to speak. They can just sit in silence uh, they can weep, they can share the pain if they want to, but they're with others who are also in pain. And there's no quick fix. How could there be for bereavement? A deep loss. It's not fixable. That's the nature of it. In the Bible, the person other than Jesus, or perhaps Paul, who is a symbol of suffering is Job. Some of you will have read the book, it starts off with a story and then it gets really hard work. There's a glimpse of hope, a poem about wisdom in chapter 28, but it's, it's not an easy read. Um, but he's got three friends. Uh, his life has got uh, his own health, but also uh, his multiple bereavements and loss of business. Uh, everything possible has gone wrong. When Job's three friends, a life has built out and so far heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. They were good people. That's a long time to sit with people, with someone in great pain. And uh, even though they're rubbish as Job's counselors, as, you know, not helpful people, that's very helpful. In uh, the Jewish uh, culture, they're very good at grief. And you can say, I'm not having anyone in your, my home 
and they'll just knock the door down and come in. They force people to be with others and make them talk about it, uh, whether they want it or not. They will not let people be alone in their grief. It's not like how we do it, usually. And our way doesn't always work terribly well. But I love this. They sat on the ground with him, just like Nehemiah did. And no one said anything. They just saw how great his suffering was. And I want to ask you, I wonder when you last just sat with someone and had a cry with them. I know it's in my job. I, I do often cry with people because their pain is so great. Perhaps you've done that really recently. Or perhaps you are the one who is in pain. And you're perhaps scared of being overwhelmed by despair. I was um, praying in here yesterday morning, and I felt just from God a word I want to share, that God intends this church to be a place where people can rejoice wholeheartedly, but also weep uncontrollably. That this would be a place of mercy. And most of us prefer being with people in the first camp rather than the second. And it's usually we'd say, well, I'm scared of saying the wrong thing. The good news is you don't need to say anything. You just have to suck it up and feel their pain and not desert them. And that is horrible. I, I hate that because I want to fix it. But actually just being with people, and many of you know this perhaps way better than I do anyway. So we're not trying to manufacture. You're all now looking really gloomy. I am sorry. We might cheer up. But we don't manufacture it, but we don't need to be afraid or ashamed of tears. Um, before you're ordained, you go on a, a retreat, and um, the person leading my pre-ordination retreat said to, to everyone, you know, if there's something you want to talk about, whether it's confession or just something you need to talk through. For me, there was one thing beyond all others that I was scared about. I knew where I was going to be a curate, where they had usually 100 funerals a year, and that's a lot for most parishes. And I was going to be doing lots and lots of funerals. And so I went, and I just said, I actually don't know how I can do that. I, I just, I don't know that I've got the resilience or the emotional strength to cope, because I know I easily cry. Uh, I don't know how I'll cope with doing those funerals two a week sometimes, sometimes seven a week. It was, I, I was terrified, really. And the good news is, I mean, he did pray for me, but I've just got used to crying and not caring about it. And I haven't become, I don't believe, cynical or hardened. I just don't mind being upset. Whereas I was terrified of that beforehand. And so God grants to Nehemiah a gift of tears. And I think he probably wants to do that for some of us today. Not for everyone, not all the time, and knowing that that's not the end of the journey, but it might be the right start for a journey. I have friends who've been through the um, AA program, 
obviously not the cars I'm talking about, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And step one is admit I am powerless over alcohol and that life has become unmanageable. Unmanageable. No longer able to manage because of the burden of pain or grief. That's, you know, where some people are at. Facing a painful, horrible truth about ourselves or a situation for someone. And just sitting there. So I simply today want to give us space to, to respond. Um, so I'm not saying we need to form an old, orderly queue and then just start wailing. But probably some people are, though they're keeping it in. We don't have to put on a special sad face, but you will know if you're carrying a deep burden of grief. And I want you to know this is a safe place, uh, a place of mercy and ultimately of hope. So do you have broken down walls? Are your gates burned with fire? Or is your temple something you really treasure, a heap of rubble? Maybe it is good for you to sit and weep before God and not try and rush to fix it. That will be okay. And uh, we have to live Good Friday before we live Easter with the resurrection. And as I was uh, praying, there were some words came to me. There was a, a phrase, repeat offenders. A bit like for Nehemiah, this is, keeps happening and there's not a guarantee it's going to get better. And I think there are some people you feel actually the way you are a repeat offender. You see you are a serial sinner. I mean, we all are. But there's something, and there's a deep brokenness that you think, is this ever going to change? And I believe that this is a day of mercy. I also had a picture of a splinter uh, in a finger, and it keeps coming to the surface, and then um, every so often, just when you think it's going to be pulled out, you knock it again, and it goes deeper. And I think if either of those are for you a truth, then I invite you to respond to it. Sarah, can I hand over?